Welcome to Europe Chats. We are in June 2022. Russia has been waging a full-scale war against Ukraine for almost four months. The European Union has adopted six packages of sanctions against Russia in this period. The first package aimed at dissuading Russia from starting the war. The subsequent packages have tried to convince Russia to stop. More limited sanctions against Russian individuals have actually been in place since 2014, when Russia first invaded Ukraine. What can sanctions achieve? How do EU sanctions actually work? How are they decided? What role do they play in the EU's foreign policy? These are some of the questions that we will tackle with Jim Kloss, TEPSA Secretary General and former Deputy Director General at the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mary. Can you tell us a bit about the EU sanctions policy and the origins of it? What kind of instrument is it? Maybe I will start by saying that the EU is a big proponent of going via the UN security route for imposing sanctions on third countries. This was the case, for instance, uh, for the sanctions against Saddam Hussein or the sanctions against Iran at a particular time. Those sanctions then must be implemented by the EU either at the EU level or at the national level. It depends on the respective competencies. Now, there are situations where it's not possible to have a UN Security Council resolution, uh, Russia being the obvious case, since Russia is a permanent member of the UN Security Council and has a veto right, so they will obviously veto any sanctions against themselves. EU sanctions have existed for some time as an instrument of CFSP that was created. The CFSP was created by the Maastricht Treaty at the beginning of the 90s. Sanctions, or to use the correct term which is used in the treaty, uh, are restrictive measures. Uh, they have been used as part of an integrated foreign policy approach. They must be consistent with the CFSP objectives as they are defined in Article 21 of the uh, Treaty on the European Union, but the actual measures go way beyond, beyond diplomatic measures. They very often involve uh, measures in the economic and financial fields. Uh, that's very interesting. Can you clarify this? You mentioned Article 21 of the Treaty of the European Union, which defines the CFSP objectives. But it seems to me that sanctions themselves are not really mentioned in the Treaty of the European Union. Is that correct? And if so, where do sanctions take their legal basis from? It is correct that uh, sanctions are not explicitly mentioned in the Treaty on the European Union. They are mentioned in the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. But Article 29 of the TEU, the Treaty on the European Union, refers to decisions, and I quote, which define the approach of the Union to a particular matter of a geographical and thematic nature. And this wording allows for the adoption, in principle, of sanctions against the third party. Now, we are here in the area of CFSP, so basically the decision, that decision is taken by unanimity. The sanctions can, of course, cover a wide range of areas, and we are going to talk about that, I think, at length. They are either implemented at the national level, for instance, in the case of arms embargoes or uh, stopping diplomatic relations, because that's a national competence. But very often, they need, you need a community instrument because they cover issues which fall under EU competences, mostly in the economic and financial 
uh, area. Now, in that case, uh, I mentioned the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union and its Article 215, which is devoted to restrictive measures. That article can be triggered if there is a preliminary CFSP decision taken by unanimity. So it's a bit complicated, but that's uh, the way it works. Um, once that is the case, then the Council takes a decision on precise measures by qualified majority on the basis of a joint proposal by the High Representative uh, and uh, the Commission. The European Parliament is informed, so this is not a co-decision procedure, it is a legislative procedure but not a co-decision procedure. Uh, those regulations are binding directly for all the Member States and are of course subject to the jurisdiction of the European mm. Court of Justice. What are the respective roles of the High Representative and the Commission in proposing the sanctions? The proposal on the CFSP, uh, art, I mean in, in the CFSP area, can either actually come from an individual member state or the high representative or the high representative together with the commission. So it's again a bit complicated. In reality in this case, primarily it is the high representative who makes the proposal because he is in charge of running CFSP. But when you get to the stage of a community measure, you need a proposal both by the HR, who, by the way, is a vice president of the Commission, and the Commission, for obvious reasons, because of the Commission's very important competence in areas which are economic and financial. What purpose do sanctions serve in the framework and as part of the EU's foreign policy? Are they designed as preventive measures or for retaliation against hostile acts? What is the philosophy behind them? As you imply in your question, sanctions pursue different objectives. The first one is to register discontent or to making political points. This applies, for instance, to the diplomatic measures like recalling of ambassadors or uh, cancellation of meetings or stopping diplomatic relations. But then, of course, you have uh, preventive measures. Uh, geared towards inciting third parties not to do certain things which would be seen as damageable to the European Union. A good example of this uh, is w the Iran sanctions at the time under the UN Security Council resolution, which were geared towards preventing Iran from developing nuclear weapons. So it was a preemptive strike, if I may uh, put it that way. Um, there are also many cases, more individual cases, where the European Union actually punishes or tries to incapacitate individuals who uh, go against human rights or, for instance, who have terrorist activities. But then there is a third major objective, and you already alluded to it in your question, and that is actually to inflict damage on a third party in order to make it change course. This clearly is the case with the sanctions against Russian, a bit already with the sanctions of 2014, but massively with the present sanctions uh, we are talking about. They are particularly severe because they are meant to weaken Moscow's capacity to wage this terrible war against Ukraine. Now, it goes without saying that sanctions alone will probably not suffice uh, to put an end to the Russian occupation. Uh, we have 
to do a lot of assistance to Ukraine, including military assistance. We are talking a lot about it, um, especially also in the context now of the visit of the four leaders of the EU uh, to uh, Ukraine. But sanctions clearly can help. In fact, it is my feeling that with the latest stage, those Russian sanctions, we have actually used the sanctions as a real instrument in the framework of a political uh, policy. Because before, to be very honest, they were sometimes a bit symbolic. Uh, now we target a big power, member of the UN Security Council, a power where, which sells a lot of energy to the European Union, uh, whereas before they very often targeted smaller and weaker countries, maybe with the exception of uh, Iran. Well, that's interesting what you say about sanctions only recently becoming a serious foreign policy tool. Um, in general, what type of sanctions do we have and who is targeted? The sanctions can target individuals, groups, entities like terrorist entities and things like that, or financial entities and states. Yeah. Um, I mentioned diplomatic sanctions already, so uh, we talked about that. Uh, there are more concrete and specific sanctions which require, as I said, the recourse to community instruments. Uh, and there I, uh, on the basis of Article 2015, and there I would give you a few examples. Uh, one is restrictions on emission of admission of listed persons to our territory, for instance. So they cannot uh, come in, uh, travel bans. Uh, then you have the freezing of assets belonging to certain individuals or entities. That means that all their assets in the EU are frozen. And this has happened massively as concerns uh, Russia. And no one can make any funds available to them either. Then, of course, you have the big field of economic and financial sanctions that considers trade, so import, export bans, uh, financial sanctions, uh, the prohibition of supplying certain services. So this is a wide field, including, of course, on energy, and I suppose we'll come back to this. For the listeners who are interested in this, I mean, in, on the website of the uh, Commission and also the Council, you have a lot of information. Uh, the Estonian presidency a few years ago created a sanctions map where you immediately see the various sanctions. So I would not go into detail here, but refer the auditors to, this, to those websites. Thank you, Jim. In 2020, the EU adopted a global human rights sanctions regime. Uh, this is a framework for sanctions for acts such as genocide, crimes against humanity, and other very serious human rights violations or abuses. How has this framework been used since? Has it been used in the context of Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine? Not in the context of Russia, and it's only entered into force very recently, so it's a very new instrument. It is an instrument which tries to target human rights violations globally, so you don't need a geographic approach, for instance, on this. You can use it across the world and globally. It is a thematic approach which should allow for quicker action, uh, particularly against individuals and entities. Uh, Sanctions against Russia, as you rightly said at the initially, have been in place since 2014. Um, and therefore, this regime was not applied in this case. We simply now, in the case of continued violations, 
including very serious ones, we build on the existing sanctions packet and extend them. So that is uh, what we are doing. Now, concerning uh, possible war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, or even accusations of genocide, there I genuinely believe that what is the most important step to take, because we've already taken all those sanctions, is actually to try and use international jurisdictions to get the culprits to court. And a lot of people are working on this, uh, including the uh, Ukrainian justice, but also the justice of quite a few of our member countries. And the International Criminal Court has actually started an investigation. This will not be easy, uh, quite clearly, uh, because you need a lot of proof. Then you have a country, which uh, Russia, which is a member of the Security Council, so it will be complicated. But I think we have a massive movement of people, very intelligent, very experienced people who are working on this. We have had various missions already going to Ukraine, to uh, the uh, uh, areas around Kiev, Bucha, for instance, where, uh, where massive things have happened quite clearly. So this is a very important development. We are in June 2022. Could you give an overview of various sanctions packages that EU has adopted since 24th of February? Yes, I, as I said before, I, I refer again to the websites I mentioned. Uh, I cannot go into detail because there have been so many things happening. So my response will be uh, more general and I will focus on the sanctions adopted post February 24 this year. Uh, with those sanctions, uh, I think we've entered a new era because we are adopting those sanctions to weaken Russia's capacity to wage war. This is a, a new step in our approach. Now, no one expects Putin to suddenly soften his stance and become a moral apostle for peace, which he's not going to be. So we are talking about weakening their financial and economic capacities uh, so that the aggressive stance of Russia and the occupation of parts of Ukraine will actually become too costly for Russia. Now, since February 22, as I mentioned, there have been six successive sanctions uh, packages. Uh, now, the measures, if you look at the measures, you mentioned this already, there are sanctions against individuals, uh, more than 1,100. Uh, unfortunately, you may have heard about this, um, that the um, Patriarch of Moscow was supposed to be in one of the risks because he's a clear proponent, not only of Putin, but of an active war. So he should have been on it. But there was a veto by one member country, Hungary, and so it didn't happen. But uh, I hope it will happen sooner or later. Um, so we have all of those. We have a lot of asset freezes. Uh, we have travel bans. Uh, and we keep this in a constant review. So it's constantly people or entities are being added as we find out more about uh, their behavior. Then, of course, there is the very substantial economic and financial package I alluded to uh, before, including in the very sensitive area of energy. Um, there are restrictions on economic relations with the non-government controlled areas of uh, Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk. And then there is the sixth package, which is important because there are three uh, major developments there. The first one is uh, the idea of an 
ban on imported oil uh, and refined petroleum products. This is, of course, very important because that's the biggest source of revenue uh, for the Russians. Now, there were some exemptions here because uh, there are certain countries who are so dependent, 100%, and on the pipelines. So basically, all the oil uh, um, going via the sea, with one small exception for Croatia, a temporary one, uh, will be banned. As far as the oil which comes through pipelines is concerned, most of it will also be banned, but there will be an exemption for a country, for instance, like Hungary or uh, Bulgaria, who are so dependent, so it will take more time uh, to get... Will to this the... be a temporary exemption? Or a yes, permanent? I think, I mean, the idea is that it will be reviewed. I don't know how long it will last, but mm -hmm. the idea is it's a temporary exemption. Uh, and, of course, before the ban enters completely into force, there will be a few weeks or months which will happen, but it will be done by the end of the year. Then, of course, we have SWIFT. Now, what does SWIFT mean? SWIFT, mm. SWIFT means the Society for Worldwide Interbanking, Interbank Financial Telecommunications. It's basically a system which allows banks to do transactions between themselves. So it's a vital cog in the wheels of the world economy. The society is actually based in Brussels. Now, uh, a certain number of Russian banks have been excluded from SWIFT, which is quite a massive blow. Uh, and we've now added a few more. Uh, but this uh, will be under review and there are probably more in the future. Many would actually advocate for expanding the SWIFT, uh, SWIFT ban and asset freeze to all 300 banks that are operating in Russia and that have ties with uh, President Putin's uh, regime as well as to their foreign uh, subsidiaries in the EU. Yes, uh, uh, let me start maybe with uh, trade which is a community competence. We have imposed import and export restrictions on Russia. The list has been done in a way to maximize the effect on the Russian economy while limiting the consequences for EU businesses and citizens. Uh, it should be said that those restrictions exclude agricultural products and food products or pharma uh, and health-related issues for because of the effect on people. And uh, I mentioned the agriculture and food thing because there are sometimes, there's a misunderstanding that, you know, the problems for African importers of Ukrainian food or Russian food is the EU. It's not the EU, it's the Russians. And we have to be very clear about that. Then there is the important field of aviation. Uh, we've gone quite far because Russian aircraft are basically banned from entering the EU airspace. Also, export uh, of, uh, to Russia of goods and technology in the aviation area has been stopped. Now, this is important. Why? Because three quarters of the Russian current commercial air fleet need spare parts from the West. So this will be crippling over time, uh, particularly as this is also being done by our uh, like-minded countries like the US and Canada. So uh, this will have... I think a big effect. Then I mentioned SWIFT already, simply to say that uh, those banks which can no longer use SWIFT, they do not get foreign currency, they have problems of processing uh, the amounts of transactions they want to finance. Uh, they could of course do it technically without SWIFT but at a huge cost, much more cumbersome. Uh, and some people even say that it would bring payments back 
to the times when the telephone and the fax were used to do transactions. Then, of course, we have the uh, Central Bank of Russia, which is also being sanctioned. All transactions with the National Central Bank related to the management of Rus Russian reserves are banned. And, of course, the Russian reserves, which exist in the United States or in the EU, in dollars and euros, are frozen. This concerns about half of the uh, foreign reserves of Russia, which are around six, 600 uh, uh, billion euros. So this is, again, a, a very, very important uh, measure. And then I would like to very briefly turn to uh, energy, because it's such a big issue. Uh, Russia depends enormously on energy exports, because apart from energy, cereals and weapons, they don't have a lot to export. So this is why it is so important. Now, we have already installed a ban on coal. Much more importantly, with the six package, we've now moved to the area of patch of oil, which will have a very big effect. On gas, the union is still is not there because uh, the dependence of some of our countries is so important. Uh, I have read recently that uh, um, the transit through Nord Stream has gone down 40%, but we'll have to see how this is going to develop. All of this will take some time, because obviously there are also concerns, for instance, about the inflationary effects uh, of uh, those measures. Uh, and we have to be realistic. Uh, this we need a little time to do this. You cannot switch off simply from one day to the other the arrival of 30% of your gas or oil needs. Um, we have to be also realistic. The short-term effect can actually be here more painful for ourselves than for the Russians because the Russians still have a lot of reserves and because of the massive increase of oil and gas prices, partially because of the crisis, they have a huge balance of payment surplus right now. So this is an issue, but in the longer term, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, they will uh, have real, real problems because it's their major article of exports. Yes, in the long term, but what do we do with the fact in the short term that we still, you member states, still send much more money to Russia uh, than to Ukraine, even since uh, the war um, started on the 24th of February, EU member states have paid to Russia 61.6 billion euros for energy supplies since 24th February until the middle of June 2022. So is there a solution also in the short term, provided that we are in the war? In what time horizon do you expect EU member states to extricate themselves from dependency on Russia's oil and gas if they try? Uh, Miriam, it depends on how you define short term. It will not be a matter of days or weeks, but it will be a matter of months. And certainly as far as oil is concerned, before the end of the year. So that is quite fast. Because as I explained before, there are some economic realities our leaders have to take into account. And as I said before, also the, um, the price increases give a cushion to the Russians so that they are more resilient in this respect. There is one argument I, I, which I find very honestly a bit artificial. It's being made a lot. And of course, factually, in terms of what you say about money is true. But I think it's a bit unfair to compare 
payments which we still do for goods which we consume and need for the time being, oil and gas, to Russia, we compare that to direct help and assistance uh, to, U- to Ukraine. It's not as though the EU decided, uh, get up one morning and say, okay, we'll give 30 billion to Ukraine and 60 billion to Russia. I mean, that's a very caricatural way of looking at things. As I said before, this will primarily be a transitional problem. Uh, because as we increase our independence of Russian exports, which everybody agrees with, we are in the process of doing, there are concrete proposals on the table by the Commission on that, uh, payments to Russia will inevitably decrease massively, and I'm also convinced that our already considerable direct assistance to Ukraine will further grow in in the coming years. What are the factors that complicate the use of sanctions? We often hear about the loopholes in EU sanctions policy. So where are the biggest problems and how could they be potentially solved? Yeah, maybe uh, I would answer your question uh, as far as I can do it, but I'll I look at it slightly more broadly uh, to say that sanctions are a complicated tool. Certainly as far as the EU is concerned, it starts with the fact that we need unanimity. It's quite extraordinary what we've managed to do despite of the necessity to reach unanimity between 27 member countries. The second is implementation, because those are complicated measures. If you enter into the energy market or SWIFT, it's not, you know, it's not a very simple situation. You also need fallback positions. You have to organize new circuits and all of that. So this is difficult. Then, of course, there's the question of enforcement, uh, which will have to be our customs authorities nationally will have to check. The commission will have to be very vigilant. There are people or entities or countries who will try to circumvent our sanctions. Uh, This has always happened in the past. Uh, There was a mention in the May conclusions of the European Council where they talked about the idea of circumventing sanctions. And uh, they didn't mention Serbia, but I think to some extent they had Serbia in mind because from what one hears, not only does Serbia not apply the sanctions which we've decided in the EU, but there are voices who say that it serves as a hub used by European companies to circumvent sanctions. I have no hard evidence about that, so it's uh, conjecture, but I think it's something which definitely uh, our authorities should be looking at. Then there is the fact that We are not here in the realm of a UN Security Council resolution which is binding on all members of the United Nations. That means, of course, each country is free to apply the sanctions or not. And the reality is that very big players like China, like India, like South Africa and practically all of Africa and Latin America uh, do not apply the sanctions. So it is something... Sanctions are, of course... The more, effective, the more countries participate, the more effective they are. So this is something we cannot do a lot about. We try to do something about it. And finally, as far as sanctions are concerned, there is also the question of the sustainability, of course. I mean, some people fear that there would be a sanctions fatigue in the EU at some stage. I mean, so far it hasn't really happened, and I think we have held very firmly. That is why it's so important to communicate, to explain, and also to explain what we're going to do for instance, in terms of energy dependence, to make sure that our economies will continue to function. How does the EU work with the countries like China, like India, and also with the offshore 
centers, um, financial centers, to put pressure on them to join the sanctions and not to undermine the implementation of them. Yes, on the financial centers, I mean, we are already in the process of putting pressure on them as far as tax evasion and avoidance is concerned, all of them. I'm, I'm absolutely sure that we do this. We will also have a close look at their behavior in terms of uh, our sanctions. We work, of course, enormously with like-minded countries like the United States, Canada, many others. Uh, we coordinate our actions. Uh, we have actually, um, there is a, a, a Russian elites, proxies and oligarchs task force, which has been created to step up this cooperation with the G7 countries. You will have heard that Ukraine will be invited to the next G7 meeting. The German president has decided that. So lots of things are happening there. But the fact is, it is not enough to just work with like-minded countries for the reasons I mentioned. Uh, now, as I said, we have to recognize that many countries in the world do not apply sanctions. Now, we use all diplomatic means to convince them to do that. There was a summit with China where the question was raised. There was a summit with India, but the response was not satisfactory. Of course, uh, there's only so much you can do. Some voices are heard to say that we should start looking at sanctions against countries that do not apply our sanctions. But I have to say that raises very big questions of extraterritoriality. In other words, uh, a, a body, it's something the, the Americans do a lot, you know. They have their own laws, and if someone does not comply with their laws, they impose sanctions, which is uh, extraterritorial. The, the EU has always been a bit careful not to go down that route, but this would be the effect. But the more important thing is that if we actually mean this, we would have to impose sanctions on China, India, most of Africa, and we would probably ruin the world economy and create a huge recession. So I do not personally believe in this, but I believe in the fact that we should really work on those countries. India, for instance, make them see the importance of this also for our future relations. This point has been made vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, if China uh, continues to take a very supportive stance as they do now for Russia, I mean, this of course will have effects on our relations. Final question, how effective are the sanctions? Do you think sanctions will remain an important foreign policy tool of the European Union? It's a very difficult question. Uh, it's, it will take time to know how effective uh, our sanctions are. Will Russia adapt its relations and stop the war because of that? What will the Russian public think? For the time being, they seem to support uh, Putin. What will be uh, their uh, ways of finding alternative clients for energy. I don't know what will be the effect on our own economy. So it's very difficult uh, to know um, how this will work. Now, if you look at past experiences uh, from sanctions, I see very rare occasions uh, where they have transformed autocratic regimes into non-autocratic ones and where they have had effects of uh, directly on the ground. Uh, there are some examples, but it's not the case. But here, I must say, we're in a different ball game, because here we talk about sanctions which are not are much more than symbolic, sanctions which can have a real effect on the Russian economy. And there, the jury is out how long the Russians will be able to continue this aggressiveness against the backdrop of an economy which is basically weak, 
and will become weaker, I think, over time. But it will probably take uh, uh, a, a bit of time. On your second question, it seems to me sure that the EU will keep sanctions as a part of its political, uh, of the political instruments under CFSP, but more generally too. Uh, I also think that what's now happening with Russia, we will draw lessons from it, maybe adjust some things to be able to ask quicker. So I think it will be an instrument, but as I said before, it is in my view important that it's not an objective per se, it's not a substitute for a policy, because sometimes you had the impression in the past that, okay, what should we do? Well, just adopt sanctions, and then, you know, then we've done our bit, and no one cares about whether they have any real resulting real. I think we have to look at the real effect of them, draw the lessons, we have to embed them in an overall policy with many other measures, active measures, not only uh, reactive measures. So this is basically uh, what, what I, I would like to, to, to say here. Uh, in other words, I, I think one of the lessons over certainly the last 10 years has been that the EU must combine a strong defense of its values at the same time a very close look at its interests and find the right balance to do so. Uh, and I am convinced that uh, sanctions in some form or other will remain part of our toolkit for the future. Thank you very much, Jim, for your insights and for your views. And thank you all for watching. We will be back after the summer. Enjoy your summer and see you then. This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.